Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 24th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Many California agricultural workers have been exposed to a pesticide known as Roundup, and some of them may have developed cancers. These cancer cases can then become continuous trauma claims under workers' compensation law. Since 2015, thousands of cancer victims have sued Monsanto in state and federal court alleging that Roundup caused their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. A favorable outcome in this litigation will likely support subrogation in the decades ahead for these claims. Monsanto Company manufactures Roundup, a pesticide with the active ingredient glyphosate. This appeal arises out of the first bellwether trial for the federal cases consolidated in a multi-district litigation. A jury returned a verdict in favor of the plaintiff, Edwin Hardiman, awarding him more than $5 million in compensatory damages and $75 million in punitives. But the district court reduced the jury's punitive award to only $20 million. Monsanto appealed, arguing the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA, F-I-F-R-A, preempts Hardman's failure-to-warn claims and that the district court made a series of other errors. Hardiman cross-complained and appealed, arguing the jury's $75 million punitive damage award should not have been reduced. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the district court in the published case of Edwin Hardiman v. Monsanto Company. The 74-page opinion essentially held that Hardiman's state failure-to-warn claims were not preempted by FIFRA. The district court ultimately applied the correct evidentiary standard from the 1993 U.S. Supreme Court case Daubert v. Merrow Dow Pharmaceuticals, and did not abuse its discretion in admitting Hardiman's expert testimony, and that the evidence in the case supported the punitive damage award, but the punitive damages were properly reduced, and the reduced award, while they say was close to the outer limits, is constitutional. This is the second loss on appeal for Bayer AG, which acquired Agrochemical Company in the multi-billion dollar merger in 2018. In July 2020, a California appellate court upheld a jury's verdict that Roundup caused another Bay Area man's cancer and his award of $289 million award withstood appeal. A third jury verdict is still on appeal in California's first appellate district. However, other trial courts disagreed, such as in the case of Carson v. Monsanto, which is pending in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Unlike the other cases alleging Roundup caused plaintiffs to develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Carson's lawsuit alleges Roundup caused his malignant fibrous histrocytoma. The FIFRA preemption was the pivotal issue in that case. If the 11th Circuit affirms the preemption, it will create a circuit split, which opens the door for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on the issue. 
If the company wins preemption and wins at the Supreme Court, the victories could adversely affect the many thousands of cases still pending and the work comp carrier's subrogation rights. Christopher Renfro filed suit against numerous defendants, primarily for injuries he allegedly sustained after being exposed to agricultural chemicals while employed as a truck driver in California. He sued his former employer, Young's Commercial Transfer, as well as a host of other defendants who were involved in the application of chemicals on agricultural crops. He contended in his lawsuit that his employer sent him to pick up loads of tomatoes in an area where the chemical applicators were applying agricultural chemicals to fields by airplane. He claims his employer should have known of the crop dusting activities and that his exposure to the chemicals caused multiple injuries. The trial court in the civil case granted the employer's demurrer to Renfro's third amended complaint and he is allowed leave to amend only as to his non-personal injury causes of action. Renfro failed to file a fourth amended complaint within the time allowed, so the court entered judgments of dismissal for the defendants and Renfro appealed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case of Renfro versus J.G. Boswell Company. A plaintiff's failure to file an amended complaint within the time specified by the trial court after a demurrer is sustained with leave to amend subjects the action to dismissal and the court's discretion under the law. And now our crime report. Two Sacramento area businessmen have been charged in connection with a 3.8 million-dollar workers' compensation fraud scheme. 45-year-old Ryan Black, formerly of Fair Oaks, and 53-year-old California were both charged with three felony counts of workers' compensation fraud. They allegedly underreported payroll and employees by more than $30 million, resulting in an approximate loss of nearly $4 million to the three insurance companies. Black and Davis were owners of Apex Industry Solutions, Inc., a flooring installation company located in Sacramento. In 2017, their insurance carrier discovered that two individuals working for Apex were performing floor installations without a license and were receiving 1099 forms as independent contractors instead of W-2 forms as employees. However, Black identified the two workers, along with two additional workers, as employees of Apex. The California Department of Insurance launched an investigation after receiving a report of suspected fraud. Investigators found that Black had a large number of flooring installation employees and reported minimal to no flooring installation payroll to the carrier. The investigation also found Black and Davis conspired to underreport payroll on two additional insurance companies who had been their previous carriers. Over the span of five years, the underreported payroll totaled about $30 million. This case is being prosecuted by the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. 
29-year-old Hakaba Kojoyan, who lived in Northridge, was sentenced to 33 months in prison and ordered to forfeit his Palm Springs house for participating in a scheme involving the unlicensed wholesale distribution of prescription drugs. Kajoyan admitted that he engaged in a scheme to distribute illegally obtained prescription drugs to unsuspecting purchasers. Kajoyan admitted that he and his associates used a Pennsylvania company, Mainspring Distribution LLC, to pose as a legitimate prescription drug wholesaler. They then obtained prescription drugs from unlicensed black market sources in California. They sold the drugs through Mainspring to unknown wholesale customers, falsely representing that the drugs were legitimately sourced from licensed suppliers. Kajoyan and his co-defendants avoided dealing in generic drugs and instead specialized in expensive name-brand prescription drugs used to treat HIV. Congress mandated that prescription drug wholesalers provide their customers with detailed information about the drugs they sell, including a transaction history tracing the drugs back to their licensed manufacturer. Kajoyan and his co-conspirators knew about these federal regulations designed to protect vulnerable patients, and they worked diligently to evade them. They stole the identity of a licensed prescription drug company supplier in California and then prepared paperwork falsely suggesting that their drugs came from that supplier. The government described how they further mimicked the appearance of a legitimate supply chain by opening bank accounts in names misleadingly similar to the licensed supplier and routing the proceeds of their fraudulent sales through these accounts. These bank accounts received about $2.2 million from Mainspring associated accounts, much of which was laundered and distributed to the co-conspirators. Kajoyan's earnings were invested into his house in Palm Springs, which the court ordered forfeited to the government. A series of proposals under consideration by the San Diego County Board of Supervisors to rein in workplace abuses that disproportionately impact immigrant workers in many of the same industries identified during the pandemic as essential is underway in that county. The elected officials directed county staff to come up with an ordinance that requires subcontractors on development projects approved by the county to publicly disclose more information including proof that they have workers' compensation insurance. The board chairman also recommended the creation of a new Office of Labor Standards and Enforcement to correct patterns he said are seen over and over again in workplaces. Labor leaders and workers said they've seen or experienced exploitation that includes not being paid for all the hours worked, and not being allowed to take days off when sick or injured. The task of documenting such abuses has typically fallen on advocacy groups and unions, not law enforcement. San Diego County is now taking workplace violations more seriously and trying to serve as a bridge between prosecutors and workers 
who often feel they cannot come forward because it might get them fired or even deported. In addition to the efforts at the county to make contracting more transparent, there's also effort in the California legislature to punish employers who intentionally steal from their workers. A pending bill in Sacramento would make employers criminally liable for wage theft totaling more than $950 during a consecutive 12-month period. The California Chamber of Commerce was initially against the bill, but dropped its opposition last month at a hearing. One notable study back in 2008 surveyed more than 4,000 workers in the three biggest labor markets, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. It found that the core protections many Americans take for granted, including access to workers' compensation when injured, barely exist in retail, restaurants, home health care, and construction, to name a few industries. And now our regulatory news. Some analysts predict that the new medical legal fee schedule changes could increase costs by as much as $270 million. WCIRB analysts said that just the modifications to the ENM, that's Evaluation and Management Service reimbursements, which account for about 15.9% of overall medical costs in the California system, could have an estimated system impact of $170 million in additional cost. The change to the medical legal review reimbursements, which comprise about 6.5% of overall medical costs, could have an estimated $100 million system impact. While the E&M system increases stem mainly from changes in procedure codes, about 11% of the potential price increase in medical legal reviews comes from a record review reimbursement charge. The prior schedule, which had been in place since 2006, had paid QMEs just an hourly fee. The new schedule will pay QMEs a flat fee of $2,015 for a comprehensive case review, plus an additional $3 per page for any records in excess of 200 pages. Often, medical records contain duplicative and irrelevant material, which applicant and defense attorneys may not necessarily exclude from the materials sent to the evaluator, thus unnecessarily driving up the $3 per page costs. Additionally, both sides may send the QME the same records, which are included in the page count. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has released its quarterly experience report, an update on California's statewide insurance experience valued as of December 31, 2020. And the findings are mostly good news for California employers. California written premium for 2020 is 13% below that for 2019 and is the lowest since 2012. The average charge rate for 2020 is 9% below that for 2019 and 40% below its peak in 2014. Excluded, excluding COVID-19 claims, the projected combined ratio for 2020 is 96% 
which is more comparable to the 2019 ratio. Indemnity claim frequency for accident year 2020, excluding COVID claims, is almost 6% below 2019. Indemnity claims had been settling quicker through 2019, largely driven by the reforms of SB863 and SB1160. Projected indemnity severity for 2020 excluding COVID-19 claims is 9% higher than 2019. Medical severities have been relatively flat since 2016. And medical service costs per claim decreased by 26% from 2012 through 2019, driven by decreases in the number of transactions per claim. And pharmaceutical costs per claim decreased by 84% from 2012 through 2019. The full report is available on the research section of the WCIRB website. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute released an updated version of its study that helps compare prices paid for medical professional services across 36 states and monitored price changes from 2008 to 2020, which includes the beginning months of the COVID-19 pandemic. The study shows how prices paid for these services compare across states, how the prices have changed, and whether price growth is part of a broader phenomena or unique to a given state. It found that prices paid for a similar set of professional services varied significantly across states, ranging from 29% below the 36-state median in Florida to 167% above the 36-state median in Wisconsin. States with no fee schedules for professional services had higher prices paid compared with states with fee schedules. This was, they were 44 to 179% higher than the median of the study states with fee schedules in 2020. Most states with no fee schedules experience faster growth in prices paid for professional services compared with states with fee schedules in place. This edition covers 36 states including California, and these states represent 88% of the workers' compensation benefits paid in the United States. You can download a free copy of this report by visiting the Workers' Compensation Research Institute's website. And in medical news, Alabama is now the 37th state to legalize medical marijuana. Its governor, Kay Ivey, signed Senate Bill 46, a new law that sets up a system to regulate medical marijuana from the cultivation of plants to processing and testing the products to selling them in dispensaries. Under the new legislation, patients would have to be diagnosed with one of about 20 conditions, such as autism, cancer, HIV AIDS, anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and intractable pain, among others. The bill also prohibits raw cannabis, smoking, vaping, and candy or baked good products. Patients would instead be allowed to purchase capsules, lozenges, oils, 
suppositories, and topical patches. Doctors will be able to recommend medical cannabis for patients who will receive medical cannabis cards to buy tablets, capsules, gel, gel cubes, and other forms of medical cannabis products. It's State Senator Melson, an anesthesiologist and medical researcher, first offered this bill back in 2019. That led to the establishment of an 18-member Medical Cannabis Study Commission that held public hearings and recommended the legislation. The study commission found that although some medical study results are inconclusive and some results are mixed, there is strong scientific evidence that both hemp and marijuana contain compounds that provide significant relief for symptoms of certain specified medical conditions. Twelve of the 18 members voted in favor of recommending medical marijuana. Officials have said it will be more than a year before medical marijuana products are available in Alabama, and it will be a fully intrastate system. The new law creates the Alabama Medical Cannabis Commission, which will issue licenses to cultivators, processors, transporters, testing laboratories, and dispensaries. The Alabama Department of Agriculture and Industries will regulate the cultivators. And in other news, State Compensation Insurance Fund announced that construction has begun on an extensive sustainability and solar energy program that includes solar, electrical vehicle charging stations, and energy storage at seven of its locations throughout California. State Fund will install 9.8 megawatts of solar panels, energy storage, and 150 Level 2 and DC charging stations. The project will offset nearly 230,000 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions over a 20-year period and save nearly $65 million in energy costs over the life of the project. The Executive Vice President and Chief Administrative Officer at State Fund said, that increasing efforts and investments around sustainability initiatives will bring a number of benefits to customers, employees, and California as a whole. The state fund construction sites are located in Vacaville, Pleasanton, Redding, Fresno, Bakersfield, Sacramento, and Riverside. The portfolio of Solio solar projects is projected to produce 311 gigawatt hours of power over 20 years, enough to power more than 26,500 homes and provide a reduction in CO2 emissions equivalent to taking 47,000 gas vehicles off the road. The state funds EV charging stations will be available to its employees and used by the company's fleet vehicles. State Fund's fleet currently includes eight battery electric vehicles, three of which are new long-range ones that allow employees to travel between State Fund locations while lowering their reliance on fossil fuels. So, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. 
And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. 